Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Rebecca Traub. She's a professor in veterinary parasitology at University of Melbourne. Uh, she's pretty prolific in her field, having uh, published over 130 peer-reviewed papers, cited over 5,000 times, and uh, done book chapters for other books on epidemiology, zoonotic potential, and the uh, Geographic Distribution of Parasites of Veterinary and Public Health Importance in Asia and Australia. So uh, we're going to talk today about um, veterinary parasitology. So, Rebecca, thanks for coming. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah. So veterinary parasitology, I guess, I don't know, I think of cats and dogs, but, you know, what, uh, what animals in the veterinary world do you tend to focus on? Well, uh, just so happens, uh, me in particular, I do focus on cats and dogs, but not just cats and dogs. I guess um, being a veterinarian, we're, we're trained to uh, uh, be, I guess, uh, competent at uh, diagnosing disease in a number of different species. And um, funnily enough, humans are a, a species of animals. So um, for us, uh, it's a lot of uh, comparative medicine um, that comes to play. And um, so as a training as a veterinarian, you, you never just think of um, the closed box, you know, it's, it's especially with parasites. I mean, parasites use a number of different hosts um, to uh, proliferate and survive. And so humans are usually part of that life cycle or even an accidental, um, sometimes end stage host. Uh, so I guess from my point of view, it's, um, it's more along the lines of, um, oh God, Sorry, Richard, I've just it's okay. lost, it's okay. lost the question. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I was, I was asking you, so you said you focus on cats and dogs, okay, because um, you're in Australia, you know, I was hoping you secretly, like, maybe you work with koalas or some other oh, kind no. of animals, too. Yeah, I guess, no, um, I do focus on cats and dogs, but primarily um, on the infectious diseases, and in particular, parasites and vector-borne diseases that they may transmit. Um, not only in Australia, but um, globally, um, and, and specifically in, in the Asia-Pacific in developing. Um, but look, my work doesn't just, um, uh, how do you say, box me into cats and dogs. Um, mm -hmm. There's been times where I have worked uh, with uh, wildlife and conservation medicine, because of course, parasites also impact them. And especially being Australian, um, there are many um, what we call feral or invasive animal species that are present in mainland Australia, such as the uh, European fox um, and, uh, you know, the cat and dogs that have actually gone feral. So the parasites of these animals. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, what happens when uh, I've heard of feral cat? Well, I guess feral dogs, too. But you, I always yeah. think about it in like zombie apocalypse movies. But <laughs> what, what happens when... Um, what does it mean to be feral? What happens when a dog or a cat goes feral? Well, well, I guess by feral, we mean that they become non-domesticated. So they rely on their survival skills um, and hunting skills. And, and in doing that, they uh, 
uh, of course, um, uh, cause a lot of uh, decline in, in the numbers of uh, our protected species and marsupials here in Australia, especially the smaller marsupials. So, um, for example, recently um, we, we did this um, research where with um, Melbourne or Victoria Zoo, and uh, we were looking at relocating the extinct. So basically the species Eastern Barred Bandicoot um, is uh, extinct in the wild. We only have uh, very small populations in uh, captivity that we're trying to breed and relocate from mainland Australia to a, a small island uh, called Phillip Island off uh, the southeast of Australia. And uh, what we've done prior to actually relocating those um, Eastern Barred Bandicoots is uh, to try and eliminate the feral cat population on Phillip Island. And this is all because of uh, a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii um, that uh, cats transmit not only to Eastern Barred Bandicoots, but to a whole plethora of, um, of species of um, not only feral, but also human, sorry, not only protected species, but a whole heap of mammalian and bird. And, um, the first time we did that, unfortunately, this was a few years ago, the first time we relocated the Eastern Barred Bandicoot to Phillip Island, uh, a lot of them did die. And um, retrospectively, looking at that, a lot of them did die due to tosmosis. Um, so this time around, after, I guess, uh, controlling the cat population there, um, you know, we, we uh, uh, had a look and uh, at soil samples and at indicator species, uh, such as rabbits, and um, also looked at um, uh, cats themselves to see what sort of burden of, of toxoplasma they, they carry. And lucky for us, we didn't find much in the environment following um, elimination of cats on the island. And, um, and as a result, Eastern Barred Bandicoots are, are here thriving. So this is really good news for, for protected wildlife. Yeah, I guess when you have an invasive species or something that goes feral, all new vectors of transmission for all kinds of things crop up viruses, parasites, everything. Exactly, especially in Australia where, I mean, you've, you've got to say, you know, dogs and cats, you don't sort of consider invasive, um, but uh, the Europeans uh, did bring uh, the fox and the cat in and we assume the dog came in primarily or originally as a dingo um, uh, migrating from Southeast Asia, um, but the populations um, were kept under check. <laughs> Uh, prior to, I guess, domestication and then hybridization with the domestic dog. So um, I have to say it's not my primary area of, 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 um, of research, but just to give you an example of, of uh, uh, the diversity of uh, research we as veterinarians can and parasitologists can almost dabble in and, and have fun with. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. Any, um, have you looked at parasites of any exotic animal, animals like Tasmanian devils or wombats or koalas <laughs> or kangaroos or anything? I haven't personally. Um, no, it's, it's mainly, um, uh, so, so I think there's a lot of veterinarians who, and parasitologists who do work in that field. Um, it's, it's quite a specialised field, um, but I mainly work with zoonoses. So these are parasites, I guess, transmitted between uh, animals and humans um, by a number of different ways. So directly or uh, via the bite of arthropods, so mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, um, and also foodborne, so through ingestion of undercooked um, fish or, or pork. Um, so I've worked a lot on foodborne zoonoses, but my primary area of ex 
if interest is is the uh, soil transmitted helminths um, and also uh, tick-borne and flea-borne uh, zoonoses and um, not just in Australia but but uh, in Southeast Asia as well. Okay so we should talk about either ticks or or worms right helminths? Yeah that's right yeah. So, so yeah, out, of, out of the two like what are the I don't know the, the parasites that you study that have the biggest baddest effects on people? Well um, I guess one of the parasites I call my baby um, is, is a parasite called uh, Ancelostomus solanicum. Uh, solanicum because it was first, I guess, discovered uh, in Sri Lanka, which was uh, previously known as Ceylon. Um, and uh, it was discovered in a, fer uh, in a, a civet cat um, in 1911. And uh, I came across this species by complete, uh, I guess, coincidence during my um, graduate studies. Um, and uh, that, I guess, is is something that I've been passionately researching for the last 15 years. Um, and that's come a long way, that, that research. Well, why, why that one? What fascinates you? Well, uh, let's just say that uh, as a veterinarian and, uh, and as a parasitology student um, during my uh, doctor of veterinary medicine studies, we had um, learned that there were certain species of hookworms that infected humans and, and dogs and cats. And uh, so we knew, for example, um, Humans were infected with two primary hookworm species like uh, Nicator americanus and uh, Ancelostoma duodenali. Um, so these were the two human parasites and then dogs and cats, they were infected with their own uh, species of hookworm. And uh, during my PhD, I guess um, I did this uh, research um, in remote tea growing communities in Assam in Northeast India. And uh, I went into this community and I was fascinated uh, to find out whether um, there were parasites that could be transmitted between um, uh, these tea growing communities um, and their dogs that they shared a very close relationship with. Um, so part of, I guess, my PhD, I did collect many samples from humans and dogs in those communities and surveyed them and collected data from every individual and uh, brought all this back to Murdoch University. That's where I did my PhD. And in doing so, I started um, looking um, under the microscope and found that the primary uh, parasite that infected humans and dogs in this community were hookworms. So um, having a look at hookworms, we can't really identify what they, uh, what species they are just by looking at their eggs under a microscope. So that's what they pass in, in feces. And so one of the things I did uh, develop uh, in my PhD in the early 2000s was a molecular-based tool that could differentiate uh, species of hookworms um, uh, from feces. Um, and oh, so it's not just sequencing them? Like, what, what's the tool like? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, back in those days, it was conventional ECR. So we literally, um, uh, for the human hookworms, it was a multiplex PCR where you get different sized bands for the two different species that we were known to infect humans. And uh, for dogs and cats, uh, we developed, uh, again, quite a uh, now old-fashioned method called a PCR restriction fragment length polymorphism. God, that's a mouthful. Um, so this PCR FLP could then distinguish um, by uh, amplifying a PCR or a part of the, um, I guess, ribosomal gene um, of hookworms, of all hookworms, and then by, um, I guess, uh, 
digesting them with specific restriction enzymes, you'd get a pattern that would tell you what species of hookworm they were. And of course, you could then go and sequence and, and find out, you know, that was the gold standard if you sequence it, Sanger sequencing, and you see exactly what species it was. Um, and yeah, so this is basically what started off that research. And the more I looked, I started finding, I guess, this one species of hookworm that wasn't quite fitting the jigsaw puzzle. And that led me to, um, I guess, pursue uh, literature dating back to the early 1900s. Um, and in doing so, uh, what I did find was this, this one worm, as we say, a hookworm called Ancelostoma solanicum, that uh, was in fact uh, discovered in uh, Sri Lanka in that civet cat, but not just that. Two years later, um, Major Clayton Lane in the British Army, he was a British me uh, medical officer and a parasitologist, um, isolated this worm from a, a human in Calcutta. Um, and that, uh, you know, is coincidental because I was raised in Calcutta. So um, the more I started looking, the more I found that uh, this hookworm was the predominant hookworm of dogs and sometimes even cats, not only just in India, but I guess in the last 20 or 15 to 20 years now throughout the Asia Pacific. And uh, I guess the most alarming news is that it is the second now most common human hookworm in the Asia Pacific. Um, so the what, what does it do? Once it infects, what does it do? Oh, I'd love to know exactly what it does, Richard. Um, you know, uh, money doesn't come that easy, unfortunately, to do this kind of work. But um, look, since I sort of, I guess, highlighted um, the existence of this, this uh, it's almost rediscovered a human hookworm. Um, there's been a lot of reports of, uh, of indigenous or, or autochthonous cases um, throughout the Southeast Asian region and also in travelers that have returned from Southeast Asia. And initially what they do is they present with uh, symptoms of, of diarrhea. Sometimes that diarrhea has blood in it. Um, in some cases, the people are anemic. And these are healthy individuals. These are not um, kids or pregnant women on, on poor you know, nutrition. Um, these are healthy, robust um, individuals in their 40s to 60s. And um, so, so the main one there is, yes, diarrhea with some blood in it sometimes, abdominal pain, quite severe abdominal pain. Um, initially, also, it could present with a rash uh, that, that almost disappears. And that rash uh, basically reflects the part of the body in which the larvae of these hookworms penetrated the skin to enter the bloodstream. Um, so I guess, I guess we're, we're learning more and more about it. One of the um, most common features with these hookworms is this um, massive rise in, in uh, peripheral eosinophil levels. So this massive allergic reaction that the human body has to them and uh, more, more so in Solanicum than, than the other hookworms or the normal human hookworms, I guess, because it is uh, most likely um, abnormal. It's, it, it really doesn't belong in, in the human body. And so humans react almost um, overboard with this one. And, and there's this uh, almost consistent level of um, very high levels of eosinophils in the blood as, as, a, as a result of infection. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Is it deadly or it just makes people inflamed for a time? It's definitely not deadly. That's, I guess, one of the good things about most of the parasites uh, that, uh, that we study is um, that it's not deadly. So 
hookworms basically they're, they're absolutely fascinating so if you have a look at their mouth parts you'll see that they've got these cutting plates and teeth um, and what they do is they attach the mucosa of the small intestine and when they attach there they actually secrete um, anticoagulants and proteinases so what they do is they they feed for a couple of hours and then they have enough of this one attachment site and then they leave and reattach to another site um, and when they do that, they continue to cause bleeding in the site that they've just detached from. Um, so it's almost like every time they feed, they, they produce a small little ulcer-like lesion that continues to bleed. So even small numbers of hookworms, even 100 hookworms in a human, um, can cause quite a lot of, uh, of uh, blood and protein loss. And I guess as a result of that, uh, can cause uh, anemia. Um, which again, healthy individuals, not too bad, but if you think of that on a population scale, especially with women and uh, pregnant women and children, that's got quite an impact, um, uh, quite a significant impact on, on morbidity uh, rather than uh, causing death itself. Yeah, I've heard about the Toxoplasma gondii that uh, maybe like a third of all people are infected with it or more. What about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, Toxoplasma uh, gondii, that's the one that we were talking about with the cats and the um, eastern barred bandicoots, um, for sure. I mean, Toxoplasma is, is one that uh, I guess most medical doctors know, know a lot about um, because of, I guess, its impact on or, or risk to pregnant women and also immunocompromised hosts. So this is a single-celled parasite that um, people get from eating uh, undercooked um, meat um, and cats have a very very bad reputation because most people think that we get directly from cats um, it's not necessarily the case so cats are the definitive host of Toxoplasma gondii which means that they shed the infective stages in their feces um, and those infective stages aren't infective immediately it takes a couple of days um, to become infected. So unless you keep really bad hygiene in the house, um, it's, it's unlikely you're going to get infected directly from your cat. Um, so the, the most likely routes of infection are from the soil. So gardening, not washing your hands and your mouth, you may get infected that way. And also, as I was saying, meat, because toxoplasma goes into the tissue of various hosts, all mammalians and even birds, and um, any warm-blooded creature, basically, and so if we eat that meat undercooked, we, we, get, um, we are at risk of, of acquiring toxoplasma. The good news is if you are uh, infected and you're a healthy individual, so you don't suffer from, um, I guess, HIV AIDS or, or if uh, you are um, not on uh, immunosuppressive uh, you know, drugs or chemotherapy, um, you'll be fine. The effects are like, yeah, wouldn't even know. Um, but uh, for those individuals who do, it can, it can be fatal. So these little parasites in, in, in the body start multiplying and multiplying in such a way that they cause massive inflammation in multiple organs, and that can cause death. Yeah. Do any of these parasites <clears throat> exclude other ones? So if I have toxo, mm. will I not get hookworm as easily or vice versa? Uh, I don't think there's been any evidence to show that. Um, yeah, no. In fact, multi-polyparasitism multi, poly, or, or multiple infections are probably a more common uh, scenario than, than one excluding the other. Um, it's, I mean, the 
host uh, parasite interaction and, and the immunopathology of, of parasites is, I mean, it's just a complete, you know, discipline in its own right, even within one parasite species um, with different um, strains. So um, it's, it's very complex, but no, no, that's not. If someone gets infected by, you know, hookworm or toxo, mm-hmm. will, will they be, in, I mean, will they, will they usually be one, parasite that gets them or will multiple get into them and will they be different not species but maybe subspecies and will they compete like like you know has that been observed that maybe um, a toxo you have different types of it or hookworm different types of its species well this is uh, a question i'd like to know i mean i know that uh, for example there won't be comp- competition uh, across species so a person in an individual that's infected with toxoplasma or even roundworm or, or whipworm or whatever won't have cross within the hookworms itself it, it, it is quite interesting we do find that um a lot of people are co-infected um so those with nicator americanus um will also have ancelostoma solanicum uh, present or ancelostoma duodenali so i don't think there is absolute immunity against across species of of different hookworms um, the immunity actually with with hookworm infection and, and other helminth infection comes from, I think, um, exposure-related uh, immunity in that when there are worms present in the gut already, uh, repeat infection over time won't necessarily cause more, more worms to establish. And this is, again, a very fascinating um, uh, area of research. So you'd find that there are some individuals in the um, population. So 10%, say, of individuals in a population would actually harbour 90% of population's worm burden, which means that um, uh, there are some individuals that are just predisposed to having more numbers of worms in their gut. Um, sadly, these individuals are usually children, um, and and they're the ones that are affected the most. But cross species not really not that i've that, that i uh, know of mm. well with toxo i don't i mean once you have it that's it so far as i know but um yeah it also doesn't cause problems in a lot of people but hookworm um can you rid someone of it and if so are they more likely to get it again you know what are there some yeah. people that are able to just clear the hookworm on their own because of their own immune defense yeah um so i'll, I'll sort of paint a picture um there are now half a billion people in the world infected by hookworm. And this is um, even after the World Health Organization has implemented this mass deworming program targeting children and women of childbearing age um, over the last 10 years. Um, So treatment on an individual scale is easy. So if you and I find out we have hookworm infection, we go down to the pharmacist, we take a course of um, vendazole or albendazole over a three-day period, and uh, in most cases, yes, it knocks it. So we'll be fine. To do that on a mass scale for, for 75% of the um, world's children, um, where these hookworms are, are now endemic, um, is, on the other hand, a completely different scenario. So getting the drugs to them um, and affording to, I mean, most of these are a one-off treatment. They don't go over three days, which I guess the ideal treatment, uh, a one-day treatment doesn't um, uh, have 100% efficacy. So in many, you know, um, parts of the world, 
a child uh, or children given hook uh, medication for short transmitted helminths, most, most commonly with mebendazole or albendazole, um, anything between 36 to about 80% of them are cured. Um, but the main, I guess, aim is to reduce the burden, not necessarily cure them because we know that's not going to be possible to eliminate these infections. Um, but what we try and do is get the numbers of worms down because the less the burden, the less the morbidity or health impacts. So, um, so treatment, I guess, is not black and white when it comes to soil transmission. Well, but again, can someone get reinfected with hookworm? Do you clear them of it sure. with like a three-day treatment? They can. Exactly. Um, so this is again an issue because if you think about it, these worms are transmitted through the soil. Um, so people in, in poor communities uh, don't often have latrines. Uh, they don't practice very good uh, sanitation. So a lot of the defecation is outdoors or in the fields when they go and uh, you know plant rice or whatever. And basically what happens then, and also because of dogs, so dogs being a transmitter of Ancelostoma solanicum, um, so they get reinfected from the environment pretty much a few days after they've been treated. Um, and no, it, it, um, what they found, especially in the old literature, is um, the people that have high worm burdens, for example, if they're treated, within six months, those worm burdens almost reach pre-treatment levels. So it's almost like an innate um, uh, predisposition to either low, medium or high worm burdens in those individuals because of reinfection. Um, so as a result, we need to keep treating every six months until at least those environmental contamination levels come down. Yeah, I wonder for you know certain communities, if you tie the worm treatment to an event, you know, to a birthday, to the start of school, to the end of school, to you know, some kind of religious ceremony, whatever it is, yeah. then it might it might affect the population in a in a somewhat regular manner, and there would be I don't know an excuse for it or an event to tie to it. I wonder if yeah, that would be a better way of administering it. Exactly, Richard. I mean, this is what I guess all the ministries of health do, um, and this is led very strongly by um, not only the World Health Organization but a number of philanthropic organizations, um, well-funded philanthropic organizations, and uh, such as the Gates Foundation. Um, so what happens here is is that uh, ministries of health have these uh, programs. So every six months they go into um, uh, primary schools and, and uh, now even started going into high schools and literally mass treat um, schools every six months through um, coordinating with the, the principal and teachers of these schools. And this is going on as I said, for years now. So it's, it's been rolled out. Last year, I think it was 56 or 60% of the entire uh, population at risk were treated um, with uh, dewormers, which is a massive, massive effort. Um, so, so there is this huge, I guess, um, drive by the World Health Organization as part of its um, uh, roadmap, um, now 2020 roadmap, now they're going to the 2030 roadmap to eliminate morbidity, so eliminate um, disease caused by soil transmitted helminths. Um, so not necessarily eliminate soil transmitted helminths like hookworms, roundworms and, and uh, whipworm, but to eliminate disease caused by them. So bring them to well, a level. It, yeah, is anyone studying 
Is anyone studying the people that are predisposed to high worm burdens or relentless worm burdens? What's different about them? Genotyping um, them, yeah. figuring out something that's going on? I think, as I said, most of these um, these are kids uh, in a lot of cases. And um, uh, and in in the case of hookworm, so in the case of roundworm, so this is a scarus, um, and even trichurus or whipworm, most of these are children. Uh, so children tend to be predisposed to those two transmitted helminths. But uh, for hookworm, funnily enough, it's early, early adolescence and into adulthood. So what happens there as um, I think children get out, um, and we don't know why, because I mean, when I go to communities, I mean, there's kids running around with their dogs and, and playing in the mud, and all of them have bare feet. But uh, funnily enough, as soon as they reach early adulthood, that's when both the prevalence and burden of hookworm infection go up the roof. I'm not well, sure. Maybe it's somehow it's uh, sexually transmitted. No, no, I don't think so. So this is definitely uh, a parasite that can't be, I guess, directly transmitted in that um, the eggs um, are shed in the feces and these uh, little worms or larvae inside the eggs take at least a week to 10 days um, to hatch and move out of the feces and then wait for another host to come come by um, and then they do go through the skin so even if it I mean it wouldn't be sexually transmitted unless I mean you didn't wash for like three weeks or something but in this case yeah it's 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 definitely um, environmental so it's it's related I guess to a whole complex mechanism of a host parasite you know inter immunity but but also the exposure these these uh, people have when they start working in the fields. So, you know, kids play in a certain area in school or whatever that's most possibly cleaned up. Um, as soon as they go out into the rice fields and paddy fields, that risk, you know, really goes up the roof because out in the paddy fields, there are no toilets. So most people will defecate in and around those fields. There's dogs that travel in the morning with their owners. I mean, I've seen this in not on just one, but a plethora of communities. They all act the same way. Dog travels with the owner to the rice fields, keep them company during the day and follow them back home in the evening. So um, the amount of fecal contamination of those rice fields that are constantly wet, um, you know, uh, and absolutely ideal conditions for the survival of these uh, hookworm species. Um, I think exposure to that would be a, a major risk factor for, for for rural communities, at least. Yeah. And I guess maybe within the person too, their hormones are now changing. So maybe that somehow um, yeah. compromises their immune defense or makes it, you know, a more hospitable environment for the hookworms too. Might might well be, Richard. Might well be. Um, I'm. I'm not very sure. Yeah, not very sure. Hmm. Um, you said that uh, there's a small percentage of people that have most of the burden, you know, for these diseases. So with hookworm, it's not children, it's adolescents. And it, like, what, what kind of skews yeah. do we see in, in populations that have just tremendous hookworm burden? Is it, can we, do we not know why? Is it based on their conditions or we just don't know what it is about them that, uh, that causes this yeah. problem? I mean, we don't. We don't really know exactly why hookworm peaks in, in early, at early adulthood. I guess uh, with the other worms, especially Ascaris, for example, there's a very strong um, exposure and age-related immunity. With hookworms, it doesn't appear to be, um, you know, as strongly the case. So, um, yeah, I mean, so what we, I guess that's what they tend to do is say, well, we're going to 
um, target at least children because we know we're going to hit uh, you know the roundworms and and uh, trichurus um, and that will get rid of the majority of the worm burden in a population um, but also they do target pregnant women um, and in in developing countries at least um, most of them are in their early teens I mean in their sorry I shouldn't say uh, in their late teens to early teens so um, so that's a good thing but I, I guess again it comes down to resources um, you know if there are uh, certain demographics that um, need to be targeted. Of course, we're going to be focusing on the demographic that fits both those with the highest worm burden and those with the highest risk of disease. And that's why it's mainly children um, aging, ranging from the age to, I guess, six to now up to 15 um, years of age. And then, you know, again, targeting pregnant women. Um, and uh, or women of childbearing age. So if they come into the hospitals for any other procedure, they're dewormed immediately. Okay. Well, very good. Yeah, uh, Rebecca, <laughs> yeah, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Oh, um, yeah, if they'd like to find out more about the, my work, um, just Google in, I guess, uh, my name and the University of Melbourne, um, and there will be a lot... Um, of uh, information that comes up just not only on the university webpage, uh, but uh, through Google Scholar, they could have a look at um, uh, the publications arising uh, from my work. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Sure, Rebecca, okay. thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, you're more than welcome, Richard. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.